Welcome to the Oklahoma Adventist Podcast. Every year in January, the Oklahoma Conference brings its pastors together at Wawoka Woods for a few days of rest and professional development. This year, our first speaker was Dr. Richard Davidson from Andrews Theological Seminary, and he presented a series of lectures entitled The Third Angel's Message in Verity. This series of presentations looked at the topic of justification by faith through the Old Testament to gain a greater understanding of how the third angel's message is righteousness by faith in verity, as we're told in the spirit of prophecy. We were incredibly blessed by this series of presentations, and we hope that you will be as well. That in your seed all nations of the earth will be blessed. He knew about the Messiah who was coming. And now here in Genesis 15, God talks more about that Messiah and says it's going to come in a line of a multitude of people that I'm going to give as your descendants. And so even the promise of Genesis 15 is in the context of the Messiah coming. And the problem with, a problem with Abram was that he didn't have any child. He had no son. How's this going to happen, God? And God promises him, Abraham, verse 5, it's not going to be Eliezer. It's going to be your son. And he looked toward the heavens. I think I got a picture here of this, of him doing this. Look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able. Good luck. And then he said, so shall your seed be. And implied in that, and one of those seed is going to be the Messiah. And so what is Abram's response to that? Verse 6. Could someone read it for us? Just verse 6. Believe the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. All right. Let's unpack it. Was Abraham still Abram here, was he made righteous or was he accounted righteous? Counted. Kashav means to reckon or to account. It doesn't mean to make someone righteous. Proclaim. Yes. Declare him righteous. Accounted. Was he accounted because of his works? When did the works come in in the story? Circumcision in chapter 17. This is chapter 15. And remember, Paul makes that point. He hadn't even done any works yet. He hadn't done any salvation works. And he is accounted before he works. Accounted on the basis of faith alone. He believed in the Lord, it says. It doesn't just say he believed the Lord. There's a difference in Hebrew between believing the Lord which even the devil does, uh-huh. and believing in the Lord. To believe in something is to put your trust in them. It is to have faith in them. And Abraham dared to believe when he didn't have a son, when he hadn't done any work, when it seemed impossible. He dared to believe the word of God, that he would send Messiah through his seed. And God counted it as righteousness. The focus of his faith was upon 
that word of God that promised the Messiah was going to come. And he dared to believe it. But before we get too high on Abram here, he's justified. And know what happens in the next verse. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. And Abram says, Lord, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Whoops. <laughs> he stepped back a little step from his implicit trust in the Lord. That verse is so comforting to me. Every day I reach out and take the gift anew of Christ's righteousness. And every day I realize how much I need to trust him more. The Lord gave me a story to tell you today because you see that picture of the mountains, what I put up when I'm putting the screen, that's uh, Patagonia down in South America. I, I love to climb mountains and my, my children planned a trip, you, me and my two kids to go to Patagonia over Chris, Christmas vacation and New Year's. And just, uh, a week and a half before we were leave, I came down with COVID. And I, I, I made it through two and a half years. I was very safe. But I think what happened is my kids had COVID before that. And then we went to a Messiah performance together. And, <laughs> and they said, oh, we're all over it. Don't worry, Dad, we're over it. So they rode in our car all the way down to the Messiah. And we sat with them the whole time and came back and I got COVID. And then and it was a mild case of COVID. A little fever, you know, a little ache, and it was done. And then three days later, I got that nasty flu as it been flying around oh, down here. And it put me down for three weeks. And I'm still coughing. In fact, this is the first appointment, speaking appointment, that I have had since my COVID and the flu. I just felt rotten. I taught a few classes this last week. But I've been wanting to get well so I could come here. And the Lord, the day the night before last, was the last, I haven't coughed since then. That night he just took the cough away and gave me strength. And I feel strong in the Lord here. But the devil hates this message. And he has done this to me before. When I talk about the sanctuary, terrible things happen. I'm, I, it was the ice storm when I came down. I almost didn't make it down because of the ice storm last year. I gave a week of prayer on the sanctuary, the gospel in the sanctuary at the general conference. And I, I, I lost my voice the night before I was supposed to speak. Totally gone. I have all these natural remedies, and I learned that I actually had a strep throat. But I didn't learn it until it was almost over. So I so Joanne and I just had a prayer session. Said, if you want me to speak, if you want me to give this message, give me a voice. And I had one half hour of voice every day. And it started when I got up to speak. I had no voice before and I had no voice after. Wow. But I got to share the gospel at the general conference, the sanctuary. Same with Central California. Again, I was preaching on the gospel. I had a got laryngitis and I couldn't talk at all, except when I was speaking and I had no voice left. I was a little nervous coming down here, frankly, because everything went so well. You know, I'm done, I'm done with my COVID and everything is okay. Last night I had a voice 
And I went to bed, and I woke up just with a fever and feeling awful. And I didn't get much sleep last night. And I said, the devil, you're after me again. You're after not me. You're after this gospel. You don't want us to talk about the gospel. And so I dared to do an Abraham. I dared to say, look, I know it's not COVID. I was over, I've already had COVID just a few weeks ago. It's not COVID. I can't get anyone sick. I just had the flu. It's something else you're trying to get me with. And so, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord. I've never done this before. I rebuke Satan in the name of the Lord. I said, I'm talking about justification by faith. I better exercise a little faith here. And I woke up this morning with no fever and with no ill effects. Thank you, Lord. And I said, thank you, God, for rebuking Satan. Amen. And I believe this is a divine appointment for us to be together so I can learn, so we can share together. And let's keep rebuking Satan. Abraham, his faith wasn't mature, but it was enough. I don't know about you, that's very comforting. His faith faltered, but it was okay. Because God knew that he was his man. He knew that he trusted in him, and he accounted him as righteous. But Abraham said, Lord, how will I know? Now, any other God than the, our God, would, if there were such other gods, would say, what do you mean? You just trusted in me, and now you're doubting me? What's wrong with you, jerk? You know? God says, I said, okay, okay, Abram, I'm going to break it down. And so he does this amazing thing here. He says, Abraham, I keep saying Abraham, but he's not the Abraham yet. He's just Abram. His name hasn't been changed. He says, by the way, before we get to that there, it says he believed, he trusted in the Lord. And there's some debate among Pauline scholars. Is it the faith of Jesus or is it the faith in Jesus? And some say it should never be translated faith in, but always faith of. We're going to get to that later, but I just want to point out, you can't translate it any other way in Genesis 15, that he believed in, he trusted in the Lord, and he accounted it and several passages in Paul. So I think there are some passages that could go either way. And when we get to Habakkuk this afternoon, we'll find out that the word, the, the verse in Habakkuk can be translated either way. The Hebrew can go either way. And it both, it's a both and. Jesus has faith in us and we have faith in him. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not an either or. We'll, we'll talk about that. I think I, brought, I wanted to put that in here to show that this is rock bottom place where it's clearly believed in our faith. So here's the covenant ceremony. Could someone read for us? Maybe I'd like to give you the mic and read verses 9 to 12 and then verse 17. 9 to 12, verse 17. Who will read for us? Okay. And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old and a she-goat. You can look ahead. Look at the screen as you're hearing it. And a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against the other, and the birds he divided not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Abram drove them away. You got me saying it too. Now. Sorry. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. 
12? Yeah. And then just read uh, verse 17. Did you read 12? Yeah. Then just read 17. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. Okay. And then the story ends. And it says, and God made a covenant with Abram. I believe when you understand what happens here in this story, you have one of the most potent pictures of the gospel and the, the basis of our assurance of salvation anywhere in the Bible. Absolutely. And because I want to be sure you get this, I've actually written out the words, what I'm going to tell you now, so it'll be in your slides, okay? Throughout the Bible, when it is stated that God made a covenant, the Hebrew word made is usually karat, to cut. This expression for cutting refers to the common practice in the ancient Near Eastern times of making a covenant by cutting in pieces a slaughtered animal, walking between the pieces. In Jeremiah 34, we find a reference to the practice still in Jeremiah's day. In the ancient Near Eastern treaties, when a suzerain or overlord entered into a treaty or a covenant with a servant state, he would regularly have them cut pieces of a slaughtered animal, cut in pieces a slaughtered animal and pass through the pieces. So we have examples throughout the ancient Near East of one of the Hittite kings saying, Mati'ilu, you are my servant. Cut off the head of this animal and then walk in between. And if you do not follow faithfully and loyally as my vassal, it will happen to you, happen to the, happen to the animal. It's basically an oath of self-dismemberment. You don't do it, you get dismembered like the animal. And so the vassal was in effect acknowledging by passing through the pieces, may it be done to me as was done to this animal if I am unfaithful to the covenant. Now here's the interesting thing. I've looked through all the ancient Near Eastern doctrines. There's this book, three volumes book that's just come out now that has published all the ancient Near Eastern covenants. It's a book that cost me a hundred, no, $400 for these books. I've never paid so much for three books in my life. But I said, I've got, to re I've got to have all of these covenants. And in all of these covenants, the vassal walks in between the pieces and says that. But the suzerain never walks in between the pieces. He just has the vassal do it. He never commits himself to the covenant. He just has the vassal commit. It was expected for the vassal to pass through. In Jeremiah 34, it's the people that pass through. And the Syrian kings, right? It's the vassal. But the ceremony described in Genesis 15, there's no mention that Abram passed through the pieces. Now, we do have an Ellen White insight here. She saw this in vision, I'm sure, because she saw Abram walking in between. That was expected. But that's not the point of the story. And when you tell a narrative, you tell the part that's the important part for the story. And the important part, he may have been arranging the pieces when he walked through, as she saw that, or maybe he walked through. But it has no record of him walking through. And that's very significant. No mention of him. The point emphasized is radically contrary to ancient Near Eastern practice, where only the vassal and not the suzerain moved to the pieces. Who is walking through these pieces here? The, the smoking torch and the burning lamp. Those are terms that are used in Exodus 20. The same terms in Exodus 19 and 20 for 
the Father and the Son on Mount Sinai giving the Torah, giving the law. Light source is a symbol of the divinity. And there's not just one light source, there's two light sources. Because throughout Genesis and throughout Exodus, you have regularly the Lord sends his messenger, his angel, the angel of the Lord, and when the angel of the Lord speaks, he says, I am Yahweh. I was sent by Yahweh, and I am Yahweh. There is regularly throughout Genesis, throughout Exodus, the duality of two persons that are divine. And here we have a visual depiction of that. And I think I have written, um, I think I've, yes, why the two symbols of the divine presence? Here we go. The reference to the smoking oven and the burning torch are symbols of the divine presence, reminiscent of the smoking fire on Mount Sinai. That same two Hebrew words connoting the divine presence link these two together. The smoke, Asham, Genesis 15, Exodus 19, and the lamp, Lapid, Genesis 15, Exodus 20. So it's an allusion to the divine presence. Ellen White is very clear. On Mount Sinai, the Father and the Son together spoke the Ten Commandments. Amen. And if you read the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, the, the Masoretes who are keeping the, point, the pointing, the, the special punctuation marks, only in this place in the Bible do you have two punctuation marks on every word. It's almost as if there are two people speaking this at the same time. Is that maybe the mark that they're remembering of the Father and Son that are actually giving this law from Sinai? Why two symbols? I already said the two life sources symbolizing the Father and Son. We talked about the angel of the Lord, and there's lots of texts about that. And I've talked about Mount Sinai. Ellen White in Evangelism 16 speaks about them together. These two beings are indicated as united as one Godhead by the grammatical peculiarity. Now get this. I always look, is it there in the text somewhere? There's a grammatical peculiarity that the two divine light sources, the oven and the torch, are described by a singular verb. The oven and the torch, he. Oh. One. Two, two things, but one. Just like Elohim is plural. In, throughout Scripture, Elohim for God is plural, but the verb is always singular. <laughs> Multiple beings and yet one, there's this, these hints, I believe, hinting that these are speaking of the Father and the Son. So here's what I'd like you to think, and I'm just going to read these words and have you meditate on this. The poignant truth of Genesis 15 is that the Father and the Son in unity pass through the pieces of the slain animals. And as they do that, divinity is saying, in effect, if we break our promise of the covenant, then let the unity of the Godhead be dismembered. Let divinity be ripped from divinity. In effect, the Father and Son were placing their very existence and unity online in this oath of covenant loyalty. This is how sure the gospel promise of the covenant is. The Hebrew word for cut off used here for the slaughtered animals, the pieces of the slaughtered animals, is interesting. Gazar, it's only found in a sacrificial context one more place. Isaiah 53. 
he was cut off. He was one of those dismembered pieces of the animal in his death. Isaiah 53 alludes back to Genesis 15 and says, this is happening when the Messiah dies. This is what's happening. By using this rare word, Isaiah links the passing through the pieces with the death of the Messiah. Daniel 9 further links the Messiah's death with the cutting of the covenant. In the midst of the 70th week, it says the anointed one would be cut off. So the word karat can mean to cut a covenant, to make a covenant. The same word can mean to be cut off. And the word cut off in Hebrew is not just you die. It's death beyond death. It is, it is the second death, if you please. It is death with hope, no hope of something in the future. So when it says Jesus was cut off, it is basically saying Jesus died the second death for us. He went through the cross experience not being able to see through the portals of the tomb except by naked faith. He could not see beyond and see his resurrection except by faith. And so he experienced that separation from the Father. As Jesus was cut off, the equivalent of the second death, he at the same time cut the covenant for us. Both meanings are here. So I'd like to suggest that on the cross, Jesus, in effect, takes upon himself the covenant curses that we deserve. And he's quoting from Psalm 22. My God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 22 is the, the, the messianic psalm par excellence. Psalm 22 has more references to what happened on the cross than any other psalm. Any other passage, actually, of the Old Testament, different things that happen there in Psalm 22. And Daniel 9, when it's talking about the, the son of, uh, about the Messiah being cut off, and it says, and there was none to help him. That's the Hebrew that follows. And the only other place out of, outside of Daniel you find that passage is in Psalm 22. As he's going through this death experience in Psalm 28, and there was none to help him. And so there are these links with Psalm 22. I am convinced, and I'm not sure we'll get to Psalm 22 this afternoon, I'm going to try. I am convinced Jesus on the cross was a master exegete. And he had learned from Daniel 9 that his death was linked to Psalm 22. And thus Psalm 22 was the psalm of the cross. And so you go through Psalm 22 and it goes through Every step of what happens on the cross, every step is what happens unfolding just as it occurred. And you get to the last verse of Psalm 22, and it's, it is finished. So Jesus experiences that, that, that whole experience of Psalm 22. But what I want to focus upon is that he's quoting this, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just as we read in that song, we sang in that song this morning, the one line about God having to forsake his son. And so here, Jesus didn't break their part of the covenant, but Jesus said, I will take the covenant part that you broke, and I will bear the curses for you. And so he becomes sin itself and feels 
this separation between the Father, the first time in his existence from eternity that God has been separated from God. And I see here a powerful picture of how firm is our confidence that Jesus' word will not be broken. He gave his promise that if he would break his word, he would basically self-destruct because it would be totally against his nature. And furthermore, he said, and I will take the guilt that you should be punished for, and I will take it upon me. And that is how sure my covenant is. So when was the first covenant? Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is the first announcement of it. That's right. But I'd like to suggest the very first one was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world and specifically tells us that the father and the son shook hands, that they, sh that they shook hands in an agreement that we will choose, the father will choose to give his son at that moment. And so the plan has been cooked from eternity and made real at the cross. You can't get much more, more rich in the gospel than looking at Genesis 15, the everlasting covenant. Any questions on Genesis 15? Any comments? Any observations? Each time, it's yes. Sinai and then yes, the yes, yes, yes. And I'm just curious. If no, I agree. I agree. It's the everlasting covenant. It's one covenant. And God enters in different phases. And he introduces it in different ways, but it's the same agreement. It's the unfolding of this handshake that they had from eternity that's given in different formats to help us make it real. But for Abram, Abram becoming Abraham, uh, you count how many times God and Abraham meet. They meet seven times. There's seven encounters. And every time Abram meets, he's made some mess up and God comes and says, you're still my son. Let's get a little closer. And there's a little closer intimacy as Abraham grows. And finally, the climax is Genesis 22, where God says, Abram, you're ready. You're ready to help me show the ultimate example of the atonement, which includes not just Jesus dying, but the Father giving his son. And so Genesis 22, as Ellen White puts it, the angels wonder as they see the gospel portrayed in Genesis 22, and they get a little glimmer of understanding. Wow, this is what God's going to do. Those who say you, get, you, you accept Jesus, but then every time you sin, you're out of grace with God and you're not, you have to, you know, do something. If you would lo be lost during that time, if you would die during that time, you'd be lost. They miss the picture of the covenant. It's a marriage covenant. How many of us have been perfect in our marriages, but our marriage doesn't end when we mess up? God says, come on, let's get closer. And usually, I don't know how many of you have fought and gotten closer afterwards, but Joanne and I have had our few occasions like that. In fact, my son surprised me one day when he said, Dad, I, 
I was, I gave up on marriage ever working until I watched your marriage. And I was saying, well, that's pretty good. He's watched our marriage. And you taught me that you can fight well and then make up and be even closer as a result of it. Yes. Paul says the gospel is proclaimed to Abraham. Jesus says, John 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and it was glad. When did he see that? What's he referring to? We could yeah, surmise yeah, Mount Moriah, right? Yeah. I think that's what we would surmise. Can I show it again? I always ask, can you show it from the text? And here's the showing. Paul says the gospel was proclaimed to Abraham when he heard the words, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now God says that several times in Genesis, but this is the only time he says it using the word nations. The others are your families of the earth. Here's the only time is in Genesis 22. And so by Paul quoting this text, Paul is saying, that's where you'll see that God taught the gospel to Abraham. That's why we got to go to Genesis 22. What I diagrammed on my imaginary whiteboard here is also the same thing that you find in Genesis 22. Let's skip beyond the Mount Moriah experience of what we call the, the binding of Isaac, because he wasn't actually sacrificed. But after that happens, the angel of the Lord comes and tells him, don't lay your hand on the lad. And then go down in verse to look verse uh, 15. Then the angel of the Lord, which again is this term, which talking about Messiah, about Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, who comes and says, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord. So he's God speaking. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, in blessing I will bless you. Okay, here's the, that's not the serpent, now it's Abraham. I will bless you, okay, are you with me? Yeah. Singular. And... I will multiply your seed, singular seed, but as the stars and as the sand. So is that singular or is that a collective? Collective singular. Many. So you and then the many descendants. But now you better watch what your version does here. Because depending upon which version you have, some are trying to make it clearer and they've muddied the water. And that's here. And the last line is, and your seed, and some versions put your descendants, but it's your seed. Now, is this going to be a singular or is this going to be a plural idea? It starts as singular, goes to plural, and then it goes back to singular because it says, your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. If your version says their enemies, cross out there and put his. It's a singular pronoun. And this is a fundamental rule of Hebrew grammar. You got the word seed. It's ambiguous. Is it one or is it many? How do you tell? By looking at the pronoun. If the pronoun's plural, then it's a plural seed. If it's a singular seed, then it's a singular. And it shifts here back to the singular. He, that one seed, the Messiah. Will, will possess the gate of his enemies. Abraham was preached the gospel here. 
And I, th I think here is the exact same move narrowing like it does in Genesis 3.15. Movement from collective. And as I said before, this word akadah is what the Jews call it, the binding of Isaac, is a prefiguration. My wife likes to say, we talk a lot about Jesus' death for us, but we need to spend more time on the Father's love for us in giving his son, yes. Against him. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. That links it straight to Jesus, doesn't it? Again, there. So I've got to, after, during the break, I'll put that re reference in to mark that we strengthen for it. Thank you. We see it elsewhere. We see verse 8. Jacques Ducan pointed this out to me, where in verse 8, as Isaac is saying, My father, says, uh, here's the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, my son, my God, him, God will provide for himself the lamb. That's one way you can translate it. But it can also be translated, God will provide himself as the lamb. Good Hebrew. And I believe that's the way Abraham finally got to understand it the lamb that was coming would be God himself that would be provided as the lamb. I look for these references because there are a lot of Jews that say, show me Christians where in the Old Testament you have an indication that the sacrificial system is pointing toward the Messiah. It's hard to find those, but these, some of these texts are the ones that I see have it, like this one. God will provide, he will be the lamb, he will provide himself as the lamb. It is. You write it. Yeah, yeah. we'll co-author it. <laughs> okay. Okay. They did know about Isaiah 53, though. Some did, yeah. Although my, my good colleague, Roy Gain, took a whole semester course in Israel at Hebrew University on Isaiah 53, the entire semester studying Isaiah 53. What everyone had ever written in the history of interpretation. And they got to the end of the last day. They'd studied all the views. And the professor dismissed the class and said, okay, see you guys later. And Roy was stunned. He missed it. He didn't say. And so he had to go up. He didn't want to embarrass the teacher afterwards he, in the class. And so he said, who do you think it is? And he said, I don't know. Really, <laughs> after all that. Yeah. We'll see it this afternoon where you get to Isaiah 53. So... Just a few things, all these parallels. Isaac carries his own wood for the father. He says when they ask, are you going to come back? He says, we will return. Yes, yes. He knew either Isaac would not die or if he died, he would be resurrected. Yes. That would never has never happened before, but he knew that God was possible to do that. He was the seed, so he couldn't, he had to come back. Right. He had the faith and Hebrews tells us about this. We will return. Then this phrase, he lifted up his eyes. In Hebrew, you can be down looking on the top of a mountain, and you're looking down there, and if God wants to show you a spiritual truth, he'll say, he lifted up his eyes. I can give you lots of examples of that. So he's lifting up his eyes, which is not saying, oh, pulling up his head literally. He's saying, he got an insight spiritual insight. He lifted up his eyes and saw a ram 
caught in the thicket. This, my friends, is the first time in the Bible where we have the explicit mention of substitutionary sacrifice explicitly. He offered up the ram instead of his son. You can't doubt it there. The ram is dying in the place of Isaac. Here, it is so powerful. And then this one, this is my favorite one. Genesis 12, 22, 12. You have not withheld your own son, he says to Abraham. Now the Greek is not what I want to emphasize, and the Hebrew is not what I emphasize. The Greek is phedomai, Septuagint. You have not phedomied your own son. Go to Romans 8, 31 and 32. He who did, should be did there, not phedomai his own son. Paul, I believe, the master Old Testament theologian, lingered long on Genesis 22 and saw that just as Abraham did not withhold his own son, so God did not withhold his own son, did not spare his own son. And so Abraham saw and demonstrated the gospel of justification by faith. We need to go back to this chapter. I got to tell you a story about this chapter and my wife. My wife was a musician, master's in music. She was happy at that. But she put me through the doctoral program by working as a secretary at the seminary. And she typed all my papers and she typed other papers. And one day she told me, she said, this, this stuff is, this stuff's exciting. Did I, I got this terrible Bible teacher in high school that boring. How come I didn't get to study this stuff in scripture? And I said, well, Joanne, why don't you? So when I got my, finished my degree and started teaching, spouses get a free class. So she just started for fun, taking a free class. I'd give her a book to read here, a book to there, and she got hooked and took a few classes. And finally, Dr. Keish, who was, who was telling me a Dr. Keish, had had them recently. Dr. Yeah, this is someone, you had Dr. Keish, yeah, right? Yeah. He said, you're good. I'm going to hire you. I want you to teach theology in our department. Me? I'm a music teacher. I can never teach theology. You're going to go. You're going to teach. You're going to... So... He took her under his wing and she went off to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School because they had the program in aesthetics. She studied beauty in the Bible. Oh, and so she was the first Adventist at this prestigious evangelical school in Chicago. First Adventist. Oh yeah, did I forget? She was the first woman to oh. study theology. <laughs> and she had, as one of her classes, Wayne Grudem, who said the first day of class to the two women that were in here as he pounded on the desk and said, we will never have a woman teach theology here at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Okay, that, so anyway, that was a scary thing, but her mentor didn't feel that way and actually was having her teach his substitute classes at the time. <laughs> he didn't know that. An irony there. So... 
she got to study under the leading narrative theology teacher of evangelicalism. His name is John Salehammer. He wrote the book, The Ptuka's Narrative. And she got to study under him and learn how to dig into the stories, the narratives of the Bible, and to see these rich spiritual insights. It just opened a whole new world for her. And so she's a systematic theologian, but she does it through the narratives. Because the Bible is not a system. The Bible's a story. And so they don't know what to do with her in the systematic theology department. They say, what are you here? You're not doing systematic. This is, this is the Bible way of doing theology. And so she does it. Anyway, she had to do a course. She had to do a paper for any narrative in the Bible. And so she, she came home and she said, what should I do? I'm scared to death. I don't know what to write. I said, look, the best narrative of all is Genesis 22. On Genesis 22. So she did. She went through her Hebrew. She learned Hebrew and she got those things down, did everything she could in the Hebrew text. And then, as a little aside, she read the chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets on this story. And she saw some more insights there. Yeah. And then she went back to the Hebrew, and she found all of those insights in the Hebrew text that Ellen White had brought out. She wrote up her paper. She decided not to use Ellen White as a footnote, because her first day there, she sat at the table with all these people, the new students, and as she was sitting, they were introducing themselves, and this guy over here was eating peas. Okay, when he said, so what, are you, what do you do? What's your denomination? She said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And he spat out her pea, his peas all over her plate. <laughs> and then he picked up his tray and stood up and said, and you have a prophet! <gasps> no, that was her introduction to there. So she said, I better not use Ellen White here. But she used the insights and found them. They were all in Hebrew. And she gave the paper. And Sailhammer afterwards said, how did you find all these amazing insights? I've been reading the Hebrew of Genesis 22 for years. I never saw these before. Mm -hmm. And Ellen White, uh, Ellen White never came up. It wasn't the time, yeah. <laughs> but Joanne said to herself, yes. <laughs> so anyway, Genesis 22 is a great, what are we doing for time? Okay. Uh, so I taught a sanctuary class here last year, and we go till 1230, right? So I'm going to run through things that I shared with you, Christian, and a couple others. Where's Nathan here? Is he here? Yeah, okay. A couple of, that I shared with you guys about the sanctuary, but I don't want to... I don't like to do, uh, repeat things, so I'm going to go real fast here, because this afternoon I want to shift to something else. Justification by faith in the sanctuary. Here's, let me just give you a rundown of the places where I see it jumping out. Leviticus 4, the sinner, the whole story of how the sinner comes, the repentant sinner, he places his hand on the animal and transfers the sin to that innocent animal. And then he takes the life of that animal, like we killed, our sins killed Jesus, and then the blood of that animal is either taken into the sanctuary or it's placed on, uh, it's a part of it is eaten, part of the animal is eaten in some way or another. The sin is transferred to the sanctuary. And God then says, and he shall be forgiven, pardoned. He's declared forgiven. He's declared righteousness, not because he's suddenly become good, but because he has accepted the gift. 
of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. So in the sin offering, you see this. In the altar of burnt offering, this has become, this was the foundational offering of the sanctuary. It was the one that went, that, that burned continually, tamid, regularly. It was always there, morning, evening, night, 24 hours a day, it was burning on the altar. And it was the foundational sacrifice of the system. Ellen White describes this as, as indicating our constant dependence on the atoning blood of Christ. How often was it burning? Ever burning. Was there a moment when it was not burning? Is there a moment when we don't need the atoning blood of Jesus? Now here's the clincher. At the end of the Day of Atonement, okay, they went through all of those services to cleanse the sanctuary. And it finally says, and the camp was clean. And then what they do right then? They offered a burnt offering. Huh? I thought the camp was clean. The one time you would think they wouldn't need an offering was when the whole camp had been cleaned by the Day of Atonement. Of course, this was a yearly service, so and the, the Day of Atonement didn't bring an end to the sacrifice. But camp was clean, and yet, so it's showing, it's not just talking about acts of sin. It's speaking about our constant need of the atoning blood for who we are, for our nature. In sin did my mother conceive me, and I am a sinner, even as I am accepting Jesus and he is making me more like him. Listen to this Ellen White, 1SM 1 143. Christ as high priest within the veil, so immortalized Calvary that though he lives unto God, he dies continually to sin. Christ is represented as continually standing at the altar, momentarily up the sacrifice for the sins of the world. All incense from earthly tabernacles must be moist with the cleansing drops of the blood of Christ. Is this a pervasive doctrine? It's a doctrine upon which our salvation is based every moment of our lives. Constant dependence upon the blood of Jesus. The altar of incense. Ellen White's clear on this. It points to the merits and intercession of Christ, his perfect righteousness, which through faith is imputed to his people and which alone can make the worship of sinful beings acceptable to God. To have justification by faith, we need both. We need Jesus' blood, which stands for his sacrifice, his substitutionary atonement. And then we need his incense, his merits that are imputed to us, reckoned to us, so we are accounted righteous. Will there be a time short of glorification when we'll ever get beyond this? When we'll say, okay, now I don't need the imputation of Christ because now I am perfectly sin, I'm perfectly sinless. No, the worship of sinless beings. Continual atonement, perpetual intercession, the efficacy of Christ as a substitute and, and, and his merits are imputed to the believer. There's the, the pieces that are needed. The most holy place. I love the picture of justification by faith here. In the most holy place, you have the ark. And there you have the mercy seat. 
and above the mercy seat is the Shekinah glory. And under the mercy seat is the law. And what's the meaning of the juxtaposition of those things? We can't stand in the presence of a holy God because we're breakers of the law, because we're not living up fully to the law. Holiness and our unholiness can't mix. But Jesus becomes our mercy seat. And in Romans 3, actually the word for mercy, Romans 3, 25 and 26, Jesus said, Christ is our mercy seat. Here is uh, Valentin Ropesitla's MA thesis back in 2016, representing the government of God, Christ as the Hilasterion of Romans 3.25. So God, Paul grasped the profound meaning of this typology and proclaimed Christ is our mercy seat, our Hilasterion, put forward by God to reveal his righteousness in dealing with sin, to make it possible for him to be both just and the justified of the one who has faith in Jesus. At stake here is God's faithfulness, is God's justice. Can he truly forgive us and still be just to his holiness and to his law? He can, because of the gift of Jesus, because of Jesus dying for us. And so it's not just, it's not just a personal doctrine that has to do with my being made right with God. It's a doctrine that demonstrates that God is just in his dealing with the universe in the great controversy perspective. I, I mentioned this one already, the end of the Day of Atonement, they have a burnt offering, they still have a sinful nature. This was a new one to me, I learned this from my student. I was happy to see this, Exodus 28, 38. Let's look at that, Exodus 28, 38. This is this mitre that is on the cap of the high priest. And so, so shall it be on the Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead, forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. What? People bring their gifts, their holy gifts, and they have to be, make atonement for those gifts? Even for the gifts, they have to have atonement. And so the high priest bears the guilt when people are offering their holy gifts. Even the best we have to offer can never make us in right standing with God. And it needs the atoning blood of Jesus to cover us and to stand in our place. That is an amazing thing. Even when we're offering our holy gifts, Luther said, I pray, how is that he put that? God, don't just forgive me for my sins that I make, but forgive me for my, for my works of righteousness, for my worship that I give, which is so puny, which is so feeble, which is so un, unholy in comparison to, to you. Iniquity is born, atoned for even in worship, doing, with, doing what God asks. Then we could go to the festivals, the Passover, the Pentecost. I'm just going to say, I'm going to make this as the last one we do here. I think this is the last one. And unfortunately, Christian, I don't have the illustrations that I brought, or Nathan, you could, uh, but you'll have to picture these. When I taught the sanctuary class, I pointed out that in Passover, there is the unleavened bread. And what does leaven symbolize? 
sin. So unleavened bread represents Jesus, who has a sin, sinless nature, no sin. And so then you go, and that makes that's quite clear, but then you go to Pentecost, which comes 50 days later, and according to uh, Leviticus 23, they were to offer two beautiful loaves of bread, huge loaves, like four or five times the size of our normal loaves. Mm -hmm. So imagine a loaf that's maybe 12 inches wide and 22 inches high and about five or six inches thick. That's the size. We have the measurements from the Mishnah time, from the time of Jesus. That was the size of one loaf. They took the best flour that was available anywhere in Israel. They found the guy that did the best baking, and they found a sift. They found 12 sifts, each one a little finer, so that when you sifted the flour through 12 times, anybody do that? Everybody ever sift flour? Yeah, yeah. Did you ever do it through 12 times? <laughs> By the time you got to 12, you got the most fluffy flour you can possibly imagine. And you bake that up. Wait a minute. There's one part I left out. It was made with leaven. Huh. What is leaven? Would you say leaven's instead for? You're not going to change on me, all right? Thank you. <laughs> so here we got the very best bread that one can possibly make, and it's made with leaven. Is it acceptable to God by itself? It's got leaven in it. And so what does God do? According to Leviticus 23, he says, I want you to get two lambs, and I want you to slaughter the lambs, and then I want you to wave the two loaves of bread with the two lambs, maybe even covering the loaf with the lamb. And then it says, and it shall be accepted. That is about as close mm. to justification by faith than I can imagine, yeah. the righteousness by faith. The best we can offer is still tinged with sin. Even our best worship, we're still sinful beings. And so it can only be accepted on the basis of the Lamb of God. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel? It is beautiful. Anyway, and I read, this is the last quote I'll read this morning, this afternoon. And then we'll have maybe five minutes for questions before we quit for the morning. The religious services, the prayers, the praise, the penitent confession of sin ascend from true believers as incense to the heavenly sanctuary. But passing through the corrupt channels of humanity, they are so defiled that unless purified by blood, they can never be of value with God. They ascend not in spotless purity, and unless the intercessor who is at the as God rides, God's right hand presents and purifies all by his righteousness, it is not acceptable to God. All incense from earthly tabernacles must be moist with the cleansing drops of the blood of Christ. He holds before the Father the censer of his own merits in which there is no taint of earthly corruption. He gathers into this censer the prayers, the praise, the confessions of his people, and with these he puts his own spotless righteousness then perfumed with the merits of Christ's propitiation, the incense comes up before God, holy and entirely acceptable. Mm -hmm. 
but a picture of our need and of God's amazing grace. Anyone want to respond to this in our last few minutes here? Thank you, Jesus. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That's right. Thank you for listening to the Oklahoma Adventist Podcast. Throughout the year, we're going to be sharing with you seminars, sermons, and trainings that happen across our conference. So be sure to click subscribe so you're notified whenever new content is released.